Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter. And today's episode, actually, we're going to be covering a few variables today in the healthcare arena. One is long-term care, longevity. We're going to touch on loneliness a little bit and also aging. We have a great guest with us. We'll get We'll get to his introduction in just a moment. As you all know, if you've listened to Health Chatter and some of our great shows, we've got a great, wonderful cast that that really helps us uh, provide insights into the shows and also gets the shows out to you, the listening audience. Our researchers include Maddie Levine-Wolf, Aaron Collins, Deandra Howard, and Sheridan Nygaard. Sheridan also does some marketing for us. And then, of course, we have Matthew Campbell, who does our actually all of our production and gets the shows out to you, the listening audience. We have also our, our new medical advisor with us and on our team, Dr. Barry Bain. So welcome to you, Barry. It's great to have you aboard. Thanks. And then, of course, there's Clarence Jones. Uh, we've had a great time doing these shows. He's a great co-host brings a really interesting community angles to all the subjects that, that we bring to you. So Clarence, once again, it's great. Thanks. It's always Thanks. really great. So um, also we have uh, a, um, a sponsor and that's Human Partnership, great community health organization that provides a lot of services to a lot of different groups out in, in the community. Thank you to Human Partnership. You can check them out at Human, H-U-E-M-A-N, partnership.org. And you can check us out at healthchatterpodcast.com. And so with all that, now we get into the subject for today. We've got a great guest with us. Dr. Joseph Gogler from the University of Minnesota, distinguished university professor, Dr. Robert L. Kane, endowed chair in long-term care. I know I I knew Bob Kane for many many years. He was a, a wonderful colleague. He was also the the dean of the School of Public Health in in the state of Minnesota. Dr. Gogler's research examines the sources and effectiveness of long-term care for persons with Alzheimer's disease and other chronic physicians. He's applied gerontologist. Interest includes Alzheimer's, long-term care, longitudinal ramifications of family care for persons with dementia and chronic conditions. It's great having you. And for our listening audience, how did I connect with, with, with Joe? Well, there was an article in the in the New York Times that's really going to kick off our, our discussion here. There's an article in the New York Times, February 3rd, and the title of the article was When a Spouse Goes to a Nursing Home. And without even reading the article further, I was saying to myself, wow, that really has a lot of implications, not only for the person that's going into the, the long-term care facility, but also the person that's placing them in, in the facility. So then, of course, then I read the article, and then, of course, Dr. Gogler's you know, research was, was, was noted in it. So why don't we start out there, first of all. Uh, Joe, why don't you give us just a sense of what it means to get or to place a person, a loved one, a significant one, in a, in a long-term care facility, and what ramifications does it have? 
for that person that's going into the facility as well as the one that's perhaps left at home. Right, yeah. You know, this is a topic that I've been interested in as far back as my master's thesis um, back at Penn State. Uh, gosh, it's been a while now. I'm not going to say how many years. And, um, you know, it's it's it, that's a very uh, that's a great question to ask. It's also a very complicated one, in part because of the heterogeneity of caregiving context experiences, uh, in some cases, function, functional or disease trajectories on the part of the care recipient, we'll, say, we'll use the term relative in this instance, and, and under what circumstances the decision is made to admit a loved one to some type of residential long-term care setting. Um, when you factor in all of these different layers of perspectives, uh, preferences, uh, contextual issues, financial barriers, stress. I mean, the list can go on and on. Yeah, It becomes very, very challenging to simply summarize, well, it's this way and this is what, you know, this family should be worried about versus that one, et cetera. I mean, I will say, and I think in talking to many families and, and, I, and our research to some extent has borne this out, uh, you know, for many families, uh, it, it is a very challenging decision particularly coming to the point where that decision needs to be made. There's often conflict within the family as to whether, you know, some uh, some individuals, whether it might be a spouse or partner or adult children, believe it's the right decision to feelings of guilt, to then extending to challenges navigating the choice of a residential care setting and adapting to uh, a loved one's placement uh, in some type of residential long-term care setting. So uh, one has to think through, think of it, I, I think, from the perspective of the care recipient, from the family, um, and uh, then also from a temporal perspective in terms of timing. When does it happen? Under what circumstances does it happen? For example, if someone is caring for a loved one living with dementia for many years at home, and the decision is made maybe due to safety or some other reasons to, you know, we have to, 24-hour care is needed, that's a very different circumstance versus let's say a crisis occurs, a fall happens, maybe wandering happens, someone is admitted to yeah. a hospital. And then the discharged social worker tells the family, you, you know, you need to make a decision. We believe it's in the best interest for you and, and your loved one to go to a nursing home. Here are some beds that are available. Um, that's a very, very different circumstance under which to make, again, a very complicated decision. A decision I might add, there's never a right or wrong answer to. Yeah. So. You know, it's interesting. I remember um, when my sister and I had the discussion with my own mother um, that it, it was time for her to go in this case into an assisted living facility. And um, I remember prior to that, the discussion that we had about taking the keys from the car away. Mm. Okay. Which is kind of like, I almost perceive that as a step you know, it, you know, prior, it's like one of those variables where you're taking away something yeah. from, from somebody, <clears throat> frankly, for the, perhaps maybe the same reasons that you might be putting them into a long-term care facility or assisted with safety, health reasons, et, et cetera. Yeah. Clarence. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Joe, I, I appreciate that, that conversation. You know, it, what it, what it does for me, you use the term complexity, 
uh, this whole issue is so complex, especially when it comes to family. And I think that part, and I'm just going to share something with you. That's what health chat is about. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I, I told my wife, if I ever get to a point in my life where uh, I have Alzheimer's or dementia and she has to place me into a home to be okay with that, you know, and she doesn't have to worry about coming and visiting me every day. You know, I'm just saying, just make sure that I'm clean and that, and that I'm not being, you know, that I'm being taken care of. But I think it's one of those kinds of things where it is an issue, as you're saying, where families need to talk about this before it happens. And so that's all I want to say is that it just brought up that emotional piece for me where yeah. I've already decided, like, you don't have to visit me every day. Just make sure I'm okay. Well, that's a great point, Clarence. And, um, you know, I, I emphasize the point of temporality. And what I mean by that is time. Yeah. You know, how how often do families have the uh, the sufficient information and time to make that reasoned decision? Um, we very often do not plan ahead when it comes to long-term care needs. I mean, I don't know if any of you here on the podcast or the listening audience, I always ask this when I'm giving a community presentation, how many of you actually have long-term care insurance or something similar? Mm-hmm. Often, you know, it's it's pretty rare. Now, again, there are, there are issues with that too, in terms of is long-term care insurance even viable at this point? But nonetheless, do people actually think and plan ahead for these types of, of very significant uh, transitions that can occur later in life, not just from a financial standpoint, but, you know, from a social and personal one. And, and, and so Stanton, in, in, in what you're saying, and actually you're touching on issues that is of great interest to myself and our research team. Um, mm. I had a chance a few years ago to visit Australia uh, to give a, a lecture out there. And I met with some wonderful colleagues in some of the different institutions in Australia. And after my trip, it led to two different initiatives that we were able to kind of bring and tailor back to the United States. One has to do with uh, uh, dementia-friendly airports, which is a whole other topic, and hopefully you'll pick that up wow. here. Yeah. I'll chatter, um, in part because the Brisbane Airport and some others have actually engaged in making themselves dementia-friendly. So let's put that off to the side. But then the second thing, a group of researchers um, have developed a very compelling support and educational program to help older adults and families navigate driving cessation, specifically older adults with cognitive impairment. And we actually are working closely with those colleagues at the University of Queensland and elsewhere in Australia to actually adapt that program. It's called Car Free Me here in uh, the US. And we just piloted it. We actually had some very strong results. And again, I think part of the reason why those results emerged, both for this as well as other support programs we've tested and evaluated for other transitions, like the decision to place a loved one in, say, a nursing home or assisted living facility, is giving families that space and time to think through the pros and cons of, again, a decision that there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, I can't I can't emphasize that enough. And, you know, I think back to Dr. Kane, Bob Kane's work, he was very yeah. interested in shared decision-making. And again, this idea of giving families and others tools to weigh out what are the positives versus what are the potential negatives of making this decision within chronic disease care context. And certainly in dementia, there are many of those decisions that occur. Um, you talked about driving cessation as one, certainly uh, having to potentially make a move is another, and there's a whole series of, of, of other types of key care transitions that occur. And you so know, it's interesting when, when you talk about, um, you know, how it's done, 
you know, I, I you know, again, I can use my own family as a perfect illustration. My father passed away many, many years ago, and then my mother was left. And here it was, her, her kids were here to help make those decisions. But the kids were adults and they were had their own families to deal with. And so then it became, how is it that you, you actually make these decisions? Like this article in, in the New York Times was referring to situations where a spouse places a spouse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, which we can talk about that for just a second, but then also, you know, there's a situation where what about spouse isn't there? Okay. Then it's adult children, perhaps, that are, are making the decision. And then it becomes adult children. Are they living in the same city? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, it just keeps going on and on these, these, these variables um, that affect people's lives for those that are, are being, being potentially placed and then also those that are that are trying to do what's best yeah i mean uh i don't think i have much to add to that i mean one thing about the new york times article that's interesting and uh hopefully people have had a chance to take a look at that is i always find those the new york times articles not only the articles interesting but the comments themselves yeah a, a lot of the readers were really sharing heartbreaking stories of what their situations were like um And, you know, I think one could almost do a study of those comments and, uh, you know, the insights I think you would gather is, again, this great variability um, to the sense of shame and guilt and challenge around the decision, which is pervasive. And I don't think we always acknowledge that. Um, But then third, again, there's a lot of variability, too, and, and much of it depends on the care setting itself. Um, it depends on the family dynamics. Uh, certainly, a family conflict is present that greatly affects that situation. And, and and getting back to the setting itself, I mean, does the facility do a good job in working with family, engaging with family, helping them through this challenging situation? I remember once, Stanton. It was really interesting. I, this was some time ago, not in Minnesota, but I remember talking to a nursing home administrator, and he said something along the lines of. Well, you know, if we could just keep the family out those first 30 days, everything would be fine. Yeah, right. And to me, it's kind of like, you know, what what are you trying to achieve in terms of person-centered care, quality care? I mean, family or other individuals who are close to that person are essential to helping the setting understand who is this as a who is this individual as a person? What do they like? What do they want? Um, and you know, if a setting doesn't approach it that way, I I think you know there can be real challenges. <clears throat> Et cetera. Please, Clarence, sorry. Yeah, no, no. I, I was listening to, uh, you, as we were talking about this topic, long-term care, longevity, loneliness, aging. What is the process we should be thinking about with this as we as we become older? Um, I'm thinking that I'm, I'm more seasoned and uh, there has to be some kind of process that you have discovered in your research that we should be considering or thinking about as we become older. Our bodies are changing. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is everything is 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 different now. What should we be looking at? So, Clarence, let me ask you: When you say process and what we should be like, process to do what? Stay at home longer, live better, both. To live better. To live better. Yeah, because because you know it, you yeah. know you, we could have early onset dementia. I mean, you know, but there's got to be right. something that we need to be thinking about. Yeah. You know, for some of these scenarios. Or meaningful. I- you know, yeah. it could be better or and and or and meaningful. more meaningful. That's right. Yeah. I, I I personally am a big believer 
um, and I'm biased to this to this in this regard, given I'm in a school of public health, but you know, adopting something like a social determinants of health framework to help us live in more age-friendly communities, communities that allow for vibrant social interaction, communities that are set up uh, environmentally in ways that can facilitate aging well, um, offering opportunities for volunteering, social connection, perhaps even thinking about employment in different ways than we traditionally have in this country to allow older people, if they so choose, to maximize the many talents they have. Um, you know, I was just uh, I, I, I was just in Florida this past week uh, to give a presentation at the, uh, the University of Minnesota uh, uh, Development Office. They the foundation. They had a gathering. Many, many alumni, as you could imagine, are living in Florida, in Florida or, or snowbirds down there, as you could imagine. Right. So I gave a talk and my whole talk was about um, rethinking this notion of the quote unquote tsunami the, the aging tsunami. I mean, I don't know if you've read the media mu much, mm -hmm. but oftentimes you'll see many articles talking about we're, you know, we're falling off this demographic cliff. It is an aging tsunami. What are we going to do? It's a crisis. It's a calamity, you know, all these different things. And my feeling, Clarence, is, you know, as a society, we, we have to begin to view the aging of our population for all communities as not just a challenge, but also an opportunity. What is there to be tapped in innovative ways that we haven't done yet successfully? I think if we take that philosophy first, then we can more readily achieve, you know, what I would consider and others such as the ARP, which has championed this idea of true age-friendly communities. So let, let me ask you, do the, any of the um, the ideas that you're, you're, you're talking about Joe, um, have they been underscored, for instance, in uh, Healthy People, the objectives for the nation, um, or not? Well, social determinants of health certainly have been. Yes, that for sure. Um, that, right, that's yeah. been incorporated into Healthy People 2030. Yeah. Um, you know, and I... Whether aging specifically is in healthy people 2030, I would have to look more closely. I don't recall there's a lot of significant focus just on aging per se. But that yeah. being said, you know, certainly many institutes like the national governmental institutes like the National Institute on Aging, uh, Centers for Disease Control, certainly as well, mm -hmm. and others have advocated and have tried to focus not just scholarship, but more importantly, I think also policy and service development along these ideas of aging as a public health imperative, not yeah. just as a challenge, but as an opportunity as well. So, yeah, Barry. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to just pick up on is uh, what uh, Clarence had mentioned, and actually all of us have talked about the complexity of this issue. And oftentimes it seems to me that there is a significant knowledge gap, and especially for families, mm -hmm. in that they really, they don't know what they don't know, and so they don't know what questions to ask. Um, and as a result of that, my my question is really more what resources might be available for, a, you know, either a checklist of things to cover, uh, a script that they can have the conversation, just a, a sidebar. My wife and I were involved in uh, having our well, my Sandy's mom, but my mother-in-law um, who had dementia to move into a long-term care facility. And of course she said she never wanted to do that. Yes, yes. You know? yes. And, uh, and soon after we did that, my wife and I had 
have the conversation <laughs> that, uh, you know, sort of like what Clarence was talking about as well, is that when when it came to be that time, even if I might not like it, I know that in the bigger picture, that might be the best thing to do. And oftentimes, once you broach the subject and have the conversation, it's easier to talk about. But many people don't know where to start. They don't right. know what they don't know, so they don't know what to ask. So I'm wondering uh, what light you might be able to shed on on that aspect of it from a resource. Yeah, that's perspective. that's a great question, uh, Dr. Baines. I, you know, we actually I developed this a community presentation some probably around 10 15 years ago now i called it the turning point and and what it was it was for families and others that kind of provided not just information about okay what what is residential long term care what's the difference between assisted living nursing home etc but then also various resources that families could leverage to help them make better decisions and you know you really hit the nail on the head with this idea of a knowledge gap in that Many families don't know for that we have a Minnesota nursing home report card um, that actually goes beyond what is available nationally, which is called CMS Compare, you know, in terms of the different areas and citations and, and, and other domains of quality of nursing homes. The Minnesota nursing home report card also includes uh, information around satisfaction of residents, uh, number of private pay, you know, or a number of single occupant rooms. I mean, all this like key information, I think many of us would find very helpful and critical in making decisions, but many people just don't know about it and haven't heard of it before. Um, that's one example. CMS, as well as I believe the Assisted Living Federation, have also created really nice checklists that families and others can use when presumably uh, visiting different settings and making decisions and, and, and helping them just with the various types of questions to ask and think about when you know they're taking a tour, talking with the staff and whatnot. And then the third resource I think is really helpful is, uh, I believe it's a University of Ottawa. Um, uh, or the Ottawa Health Research Institute, I, I forget the acronym, forgive me, but they actually have a whole compendium of different shared decision-making resources, many mm -hmm. of them evidence-based, for a range of different healthcare decisions. And one of them includes uh, making the decision to enter a nursing home or residential care setting. And it's very nice and it's very interactive. And again, it helps families weigh the pros and cons, uh, and, and it's tailored to each situation as to whether it's potentially the right decision or not. Again, these are all great resources. They've been developed and created. The issue, as it is with so much of knowledge and innovation and science, Barry, is less about do these tools exist and more about disseminating and implementing them effectively. That whole latter piece to me is, again, something I'm really interested in. But in large, I think many of us, particularly those of in academia, have not done a good job in attending to. Um, you know, it's interesting when you when you think about um, resources that are available. You know, for many of us, it, you you look for resources when you need to look for them, and it's like you know, if if all of a sudden you're you're diagnosed like with cancer and you've never dealt with cancer before in your life, it's like where in the hell do you start? Okay, same idea here with with long-term care issues, I, I have a sense that people um, have at least been thinking about it a little bit longer overall. But the problem is, is that, you know, still where to go to find these, these resources that'll make decision-making easier. 
So we 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 touched on one thing, you know, payment. You know, you talked you talked about long term care insurance and all this other kind of stuff. So here's what here's what was curious. What actually one of my um, one of my colleagues asked me this question. He said, "Make sure you ask him this: How do pay? How do people pay for placing a spouse in long term care? Is it separate insurance?" kicks in is it is it how how does that work in other words is it like if i decided i have to pay, place my spouse in insurance who who's responsible for for the payment mechanisms of that or is that all worked out with social workers and, and, and i think it's set? it's usually just like we we started the program off with stanton i mean it it, it varies and it depends really on what are the financial resources of that particular family? I mean, uh, in in most instances, payment often will begin. Although I I can't even say most instances. I'd have to look into this more. Yeah. But often, yeah. for many families, it'll begin with some private pay option. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, if one is lucky enough to have long term care insurance, and again, very few do, that can cover some aspects of services at least at the beginning. But I think where it becomes challenging for many families is if someone, and we know with people living with dementia, it could be many years, um, someone who's living in residential long-term care, at, at some point, you know, the resources that one has available are going to run out, 401k, exactly. yeah. um, all of those things. And so then, you know, the very challenging decision has to be made about, quote unquote, spending down where then public insurance covers it, which is Medicaid. Right. Um, that then also limits options, limits availability, in terms of where people can go, where they can stay. And so, again, it becomes a very fragmented uh, series of, of financial decisions that often families are confronted with. Yeah, which Medicaid, complicates it, was, it all. Right. Medicaid, when it was originally designed and developed in the mid-60s, was never intended to pay for long-term care. It was, it was you know, health insurance, right. medical insurance for the poor. It's become, in many ways, de facto... Uh, financing, public financing for long-term care yeah. and, and maybe broader long-term services source, but specifically residential long-term care. There are many uh, scholars who have explored how can we better refinance long-term services and supports. So and when I use that term, long-term services and supports, broadly thinking of not just residential long-term care, but community-based supports, how can we better come up with refinancing models that can allow people to stay at home longer, which, which again, most of us prefer, um, mm -hmm. but then may also provide some cost savings to us as a uh, public as well. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Gagler, let me ask, I want to ask yeah. you this question. I want to go back yes. and, and, and talk about this. Can you identify some age-friendly places and spaces, and what is it that we should be learning from them? You know, that's a great question, Clarence. Um, I'm sure there's a list. I know I, I just had to cite this for a paper I was writing uh, a couple of months ago. There are hundreds of age-friendly communities in the U.S. Um, and usually what that entails is kind of building coalitions and partnerships, often amongst organizations that maybe wouldn't originally think about themselves as being on the forefront of age-friendliness. You know, it could be the local library, the local police department, local businesses, et cetera. And then those communities go through this process to more or less become, quote unquote, age friendly. Now, I'll share something what I think, Clarence, and this is an issue uh, with age friendliness. 
if you drove into an age-friendly community, would you know it's age-friendly? I'm not sure you would, and I don't know. Um, you know, ideally, what should an age-friendly community look like? Uh, there should be infrastructure built in such a way that can allow older people to more easily navigate their neighborhoods, to identify the social and other resources and access those resources more easily. Um, whether there's a blueprint out there, where I can say, look, Clarence, take this checklist, go to, you know, Albert Lee's a good example. You know, that's a blue zone. I'm sure many people consider that's probably a trolling. Go down there and, and hear Clarence. Here's the checklist. Come back and let's rate it. Um, I don't think the age friendly movement has gotten that far yet. It's much more been focused on what are the partnerships and relationships that need to be built to begin to think about how, you know, each community can make themselves age friendly. But there, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, you know, for lack of a better term, and forgive me, I'm a researcher, but to measure age friendliness, yeah. you know, what, what there have been tools developed, but I don't know how widely they've been applied to communities. So if I drive down to Albert Lee, you know, can I say with all confidence, this is age friendly? The other thing I'll say too about age friendly and this whole movement, this principle is age friendly has gone beyond just communities. It also... Uh, there's an age-friendly university movement. So we made, uh, you know, we engaged with the leadership at the University of Minnesota, our Center for Healthy Aging and Innovation. And the University of Minnesota became the first age-friendly university in the state. And really all that was was just a series of actions we had to take, including some assessments and other things to become age-friendly. But then it kind of stopped, you know? And so luckily, you know, under the leadership of Rajan Moon, Dr. Rajan Moon, who's one of our associate directors, we have a very vibrant age-friendly council. We have age-friendly university day, et cetera. But, you know, we have work to do to go beyond just creating a checklist saying, okay, we did this, 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 this. Okay, we're age-friendly. And more about measuring and evaluating and identifying metrics to ensure that you indeed are age-friendly. Similarly with age-friendly health systems, um, et cetera. So does age friendly, at least the way it's defined so far, also includes sickness friendly? That's a good point, Stan. I haven't heard that term used in the context of age friendly. Yeah. I have not heard that so, term. So, yeah. So, all right. I want to um, kind of talk about some other variables that kind of linger in this, in this conversation. And that's um, the ideas of loneliness. Mm-hmm being alone um and those types of things so uh, just for our listening audience if you have a if you have a chance uh dr vivek murthy who who used to be the surgeon general of of the united states has really taken this upon himself to address loneliness and um it's interesting he he really defined and, and we can link it to this conversation for sure there's intimate loneliness what he described intimate loneliness, relationship loneliness, community loneliness, and isolation, living alone all, all together. And when you place a spouse or a significant other in a, uh, a long-term care facility, I can't help but think that you're going to be dealing with some of this stuff. Some some level of isolation, some level of loneliness all of a sudden. I mean, even if that that person might have been so sick that you placed in, in long-term care, but just their presence, just being out of out of the house, 
um, can, I, I would assume can lead to that. Yet, um, you know, according to the article that came in out in the New York Times, it, um, there's also a sense of relief oh, yeah. too. Relief and stress reduction. So I, I wonder if you could comment on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, and I, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that that latter point up in particular. Um, that you know, that is what we found in our research, actually. Yeah. Um, and and we found it across multiple data sources. So my sense is, you know, it has some validity. Is when 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 families were assessed on measures of stress and depression over time. So let's say uh, up to a year after placement uh, and such, sometimes longer, we would find generally pretty significant, in fact, clinically significant reductions in depressive feelings of you know, depressive symptoms, mm -hmm. as well as feelings of stress per se. And so, yes, certainly over time, there's a sense of relief on the part of families, at least as it relates to care-related stress. And it makes sense if you think about it. I mean, many of the day-to-day -day care responsibilities are relinquished in, mm -hmm. in, in many instances uh, when someone is admitted to a residential setting. However, that doesn't mean there might be other stressors that arise that aren't being captured by these measures of care-related stress. Dealing with the staff, we talked about payment, financial issues, having to advocate for a loved one to ensure that they're getting what they need. These can cause other potential stressors. And one thing we seem to be, you know, I think we get at least the very least have gotten signals in our work is these pressures tend to be most prominent in those first few months after admission, usually. That's usually when the, the biggest issues are occurring. You know, to get to your first point of loneliness in general, um, certainly in the context of uh, nursing home admission, but maybe even more broadly for both families as well as relatives as well. Yeah. You know, and it was a tragic, I, I would say a very tragic natural experiment we all witnessed was the COVID pandemic. And yes. what did we see? And I heard this from many families, um, staff and others, was when families could no longer visit, that the residents were were suffering uh significantly. Um mm -hmm. people were using terms like they they almost saw it similar as like failure to thrive amongst these residents. And what that really, I think, emphasizes and demonstrates. Now, do I have a great scientific findings to share with you to say, look at what I've seen? I haven't seen that necessarily, but I've heard enough from the field to suggest that it was an issue. Um, and many, you know, there's probably many of your listeners and others who experienced it firsthand. Is you know this whole I, this idea of social connection, social interaction is critical to health. Um, certainly, it's critical to successful aging. It's a core component of social determinants of health. And, you know, at, at the very least, it's been elevated as an issue of public health concern. Um, and again, getting back to this whole conversation and discussion about age-friendly communities, what is an age-friendly community? How can we achieve it? Th this idea of creating social connections for older people is critical. And, you know, one point I wanted to make that I didn't get to when talking about this Florida presentation I really wanted to emphasize for that audience when we talk about, okay, what can we do to make our, you know, society more friendly is what is good for older people often is good for all of us. 
Um, so when you're talking about social connection, creating greater social connections, social engagement, whether it's through volunteering or whatnot, I would argue that has benefits across the life course for all segments of society, not just older people. Similarly, when you talk about how do we create an, a greater age-friendly health system? I mean, to me, the knee-jerk obvious response is we need to incorporate geriatric principles more more effectively within healthcare systems. Well, quite frankly, that's good for anyone, I would argue, because that what ge good geriatric care is really good chronic disease care. Um, and again, our healthcare system, at least in some instances, maybe in many, has fallen short in that regard. So, Dr. Godley, I want to ask you this question. Yeah. What does the research say about self-care during this process without being guilt feeling guilty? Yeah, I mean, self-care is is a generally a recommended strategy and approach in many, many support programs and interventions for families who are caring for loved ones with dementia, either, either at home or those who are trying to navigate this, uh, this uh, placement experience. Um, and it is very hard, I think, to get many caregivers, number one, even identify that they're a caregiver. Um, there are many people, you might know some in your own lives where, where you see them, they clearly are extending a lot of energy and caring for, say, a partner, a spouse, a parent um, who is living with a chronic disease. But if you try to get them to identify themselves as a caregiver, oftentimes that doesn't even register. Well, I'm just doing this because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm their son or I'm their wife or husband or partner. Um, and so that self-identification often is critical in a first step to then open the conversation as to you're doing a lot for your loved one. Um, you know, in some cases you're doing a heroic amount of work. However, you need to take care of yourself in order to be the best possible caregiver, son, partner, spouse to your loved one. And here are some strategies on how to do that. And oftentimes that's a light bulb moment for many families because they don't think about that. Um, oftentimes, sometimes when people approach us for our studies, even though we're very clear about, you know, this is a study about dementia caregiving or caregiving support, they often will enroll because they either want to do it to help somebody else, whether it's their loved one directly or some other caregiver out there, altruism, um, and never really identify what their own specific needs are per se. Um, so that to me is a, a critical first step often um, in helping families with this entire situation of care and caregiving. And, you know, we hold an annual conference each year at the University of Minnesota, a free one called Caring for People with Memory Loss. It's all about tools and resources for families, people living with dementia, as well as healthcare professionals, and how to best help someone living with cognitive impairment. And so let me let me ask you. Um, sure, Stanton. You know, we're, we're, can, can I just make? I just want to finish this real quick, Stan. Yeah. And the one thing, uh, and it's getting to Clarence's question. And and the one thing that always strikes me is when people come to the conference, particularly for the first time, yeah. you know, their reaction is always, "I never knew there were this many other people in this situation." And so, you know, again, this all dovetails with the loneliness thing, but then also the issue of self care, as you mentioned, Clarence. Sorry, Stanton. So you know, there's. All this, I mean, it's a lot right? when you really think about all the variables and all the implications and timing and costs and all that kind of stuff. So based on everything, what do you believe is the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, in order to really have some strong implications for our communities? And how is it that we can communicate that effectively? The lowest hanging fruit. That's a good question. 
I should think about that more. You know, I think the the lowest hanging fruit, I, I believe, I do think is, and I know I keep bringing this up over and over, I, I do think it's, you know, working with communities to begin the age-friendly community process. It's not very costly. It's not a real heavy lift. It helps break down silos amongst, you know, organizations and people who might not necessarily think about aging as a as a important issue for their given community. And then I think it might then I do believe it begins to open up doors to maybe uh, other types of uh, action, um, whether it's advocating for certain types of services and supports to be available, uh, whether it is moving towards different infrastructural uh, uh, advancements. So that to me is, I think, uh, I, I hesitate to call it low-hanging fruit because it is work and it is effort. Yeah. Thinking of the big picture, so much innovation comes from communities themselves. It's not necessarily flowing from academia to the community all the time. I think many you know academics like to think that. I think oftentimes the solutions, the best solutions that are most tailored to the needs locally come from the community themselves. Yeah. Creating a mechanism for that to happen, I think, is best not only for the communities in the end, it's best for us as researchers as well, because um, then we can begin to identify ideas, innovations that then could be tested more broadly and disseminated more broadly. So in the end, that to me, I, I think, are critical first steps. You know, I think of you know, long term care is avoidance behavior. <laughs> you know, it's like you know, not, <laughs> not, none of us really want to. And, and and for many people, you know, they want to live at home and all this kind of, so it's avoidance behavior. So how is it that we can, we can get beyond, you sh it shouldn't be avoided. Okay. It, it shouldn't have a negative connotation in that sense. How is it that we can truly make long-term care um, easier, um, more user-friendly, um, more engaging for, for, for all of us? in the sense that um, it's not as hard to to navigate for those that are that yeah. really need it and for those that are, are behind. So Clarence, other thoughts that you have? I was thinking about this. Uh, I wanna live longer. Uh, <laughs> how do I, how do I do that? I mean, you know, I mean, you've studied a lot about, you know, uh, Alzheimer's and things like that. I'm, I'm trying, I'm, you know, I know that, that, that forgetting stuff is a normal part of getting older and things mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, are there some things that we could be doing that would, uh, um, you know, some low hanging fruits again, that we could be doing it to, uh, to be better, have a better uh, way of life. You know, before yeah. this, we had a show uh, right prior to this on yeah. the illusion of immortality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've read this. Story. I mean, one thing you could do, Clarence, is you can spend the $2 million that that 49, 46-year-old tech billionaire is doing to try to to live forever. I mean, good luck with that. I guess. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right, right, so, right. I mean, what what are reasonable ways to, to think about living better and longer? And I don't think anything I'm going to say should be a surprise. Um Again, it gets back to this idea of we kind of know some of the answers. These things. It's a matter of whether we're we and do we have the resources available to do it. And so I, I think one thing with with longevity is certainly uh, uh, good heart health. Um, heart health certainly has links, as we know, to cognitive health. 
uh, dementia later in life. So managing one's hypertension, uh, managing one's weight to a reasonable extent, uh, managing one's diabetes. I mean, these clearly are all factors that can contribute to, um, you know, potential longevity. Uh, others as well, as I, as you've heard me indicating, certainly a social interaction and engagement. Um, and again, I acknowledge that not all of us are social butterflies. Not all of us like to be around people talking all the time and engage in activity. But that being said, there certainly is pretty good literature suggesting living alone and probably more specifically loneliness is associated with a number of adverse health outcomes in late life, including dementia. Absolutely. And, yeah. and so human beings are hard, are, are really hardwired. They are interactive. very much are. And I think that's that's something that, you know, you can make a good case could be rapidly uh, uh, eroding given our technology addiction as a society. Exactly. You know, and I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'll admit it. So, I mean, that's another area, Clarence. And, you know, I think a third is, again, moderate exercise, clearly. Um, limiting alcohol intake, again, which is probably linked to heart health too, if not eliminating it entirely. And the, again, the literature really vacillates a lot. Is red wine good or not? Is a beer every once in a while? I mean, it, it seems to go back and forth, but uh, again, clearly limiting alcohol intake is important. Uh, moderate exercise that I would argue would include aerobic exercise, flexibility, and then strength training too, but moderately. Um, that seems to be pretty uh, important as well. Um, I think if you mix in all of those different factors and, you know, I noticed in some of the pre uh, podcast notes, you had alluded to some of the studies that have been examining this, um, mm -hmm. you know, that have looked at kind of these these lifestyle behavioral interventions that include social interaction, you know, diet and exercise and such. And, you know, they have shown at, the, at least in a preliminary fashion, some promising results. Yeah. Now, the one thing you can't discount, you know, genetics plays a role in longevity. We can't ignore that. Um, <laughs> that being said, though, for example, if you look at dementia and lifetime prevalence of dementia risk, and you can probably look at mortality factors and dementia risk, and there's probably quite a bit of overlap in those two. Um, you know, the most recent evidence of synthesizing all the available literature suggests, you know, 40% of dementia risk is modifiable, which is significant but it also it also necessitates really a life course lifespan if not public health approach to achieve that so you know when you talk about ge genetics it's kind of like you know for myself i feel like i have like a split personality because it's you know, my father died when he was he was he was quite young and and i was young and then my mother died when she was quite old so where does that leave me somewhere genetically in between right yeah i mean we could spend all day thinking of well you know i had my this grandparent did this and this father yeah, exactly. This. exactly i mean you know i guess the best way to approach this is what what are the elements that you can control right. um you know if there is a history of certain uh significant health factors in one's family you know is to be screening that and determining how one can if not prevent it manage it effectively and, you know, proceed the best way possible that way. You know, one tr tried and true way we know extends the lifespan clearance, but none of us want to do. What do you think it is? Let me ask, let me ask you all. What do you think it is? There's one tried and true way. At the very least, an animal model seems to suggest is the case. What do you think it is? The tried and true exercise. No. Nope. Better sleep. Activity. 
it's it's caloric restriction or caloric okay <laughs> significantly so clarence if you're willing to live on you know 1100 calories a day i mean you can live longer but again but is that is that no good quality, for your mental yeah, health though? no it's not I think it's horrific, <laughs> horrific quality of life so you know i mean i would i like to live longer yes I would never want to live the life of that tech billionaire and what he's doing to himself. I mean, which yeah. is odd beyond belief. And exactly. So, so does that mean that I have to forage or what? I mean, what, what does that mean? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, pretty much. You just thought, you know, you just, you can't eat, you just don't eat a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I know some people tried to submit, they, they subjected themselves to this, there's this regimen. Sure. I, I, who knows what's going on with that. So, okay. All right. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. I won't. I, yeah. Well, I look. I mean, try, I'm not going to try that one. I won't try that one. Okay. I'll. I'll. I'll, I'll stick with the the long. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say this though about the whole lifestyle, uh, pro, you know, approach is we have to be very careful. I think when communicating this and engaging with different communities about this and using culturally appropriate and tailored messaging right. and content with doing that. I mean. I'm Italian and I know what the Mediterranean diet is, but that doesn't mean I can go into different communities and say, you need to do the Mediterranean diet. You should eat this. I mean, it may not resonate with different communities. And so I've seen really great examples, for example, in the indigenous communities where they have, you know, identified brain healthy diets, but aligning with, you know, traditional food and, you know, uh, and such and ingredients in from those traditions and communities. That is, I think, the best way and, and an important way to to try to engage all with, with with this message. You know, there's that infamous one-liner. I believe it's attributed to Jimmy Durante, of, of you know, a comedian way way back. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barry, any any comments from you, Barry? Well, I I think the. Uh... The balance here is between quality of life and quantity of life with with a lot of these things and, and kind of deciding. And that's where it gets very individual, that each person has their priorities uh, and they'll move ahead. So calorie restriction for me, 1,100 calories. I don't know if that the juice is worth a squeeze. Yeah, uh, right. You know, I, I don't think it is. I don't think <laughs> You know, I'll live another year, you know, longer, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'll be, you know, going through the cupboards all, all the time. You know, that that's not uh, necessarily a, a positive. Um uh, but I think also some of the other things, there are some there are some basic things that people can do that I've been reading about, um, especially related to dementia, is getting enough sleep and getting mm. good quality sleep that there's been uh, quite a bit of research there. Um, and also, I, I just come down that it's this idea, I think if you have some friends and you stay connected with them, um, you know, humans are, you know, sort of hardwired to, to yeah. be interacting with other people. And, and it serves purposes, not only social, but, you know, checking in every day, making, you know, sure people are, are doing okay from, from day to day. And it's that everyday interaction that I think helps. And, and one other question that, you know, just a, a real brief one is that when you do have a loved one, uh, let's say with dementia that uh, goes into long-term care, um, it would seem to me that that frequency of visits, though short, is probably qualitatively better than feeling like you have to be there for eight hours. I, 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 I think it is certainly, uh, you know, from the standpoint of the well-being of the family member. 
Yep. And I've heard stories, um, it hasn't really come out of my, in our research too much, but I've heard stories certainly uh, of uh, spouses, they'll go there every day and spend hours a day. And in those instances, you know, you can make the case, even though I would argue ner with nursing home admission or residential care, but caregiving doesn't end, it changes usually, but doesn't end. In those instances, you can make the case, well, has caregiving really ended at all? Um, and yeah. maybe it's worse. I mean, and, you know, just like you said, Clarence, this idea of self-care, um, right. it becomes really critical in those instances because in the end, you might have uh, the spouse or whoever that might be, the, the person who's visiting, you know, is probably being stressed, might might be at risk for, you know, uh, uh, reduced well-being. Isn't necessarily that great for the care recipient themselves. It may be, it may not be, it, it, who knows. And then third is, how is this person being there all the time? How are they interacting with staff? Is it confrontational? Is it helpful? Yeah, are they sure. working as a team or not? Yeah. You know, I mean, so again, it's uh, it's hard for, for some to let go. It's hard for some families to recognize that the role has changed. Um, and, and again, that is where support during this and similar types of transitions is important. That's why I asked the question about guilt. Is that I mean, you know, if you know, if somebody's up in there for eight hours a day, I mean, like, you know, well, clearly, I mean, that's what I mean, I know you love people, I know you love people, but you know, that that's you know, and if you talk to them, they don't know what you're saying. I mean, it's like, what's what's going on? I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just trying to, I'm just saying, these are the things that I have struggled with. I want to say one other thing too, yeah, is that I have been a caregiver of a caregiver, and that's hard work. So I think that, you know, for, for people to understand why it's so important to do self-care during this process, because this is a lot of this is a lot of work uh, that you want to do, but you also have to take care of yourself at the same time. Yeah. You I, know, as human beings, we 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 are given um, practice along the way. I don't think we necessarily think of it that way. But, you know, when people, for instance, have a knee replaced, they need to have, you know, some support at home. Or when somebody just gets sick at home, um, and and you know, it's going to be, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's not chronic, but acute. We, we are given some tools. Yeah, it's, it's just that we don't embrace them in such a level that we're talking about here yeah to, yeah to some extent stanton but i i you know again this because my area is in dementia yeah i think when you start talking about dementia it kind of is a different animal yeah yeah um, yeah dementia is animal tough. when you start you know factoring in the stigma related to dementia caring for someone with dementia the nature of the disease yes potentially all-encompassing nature it can absolutely pose to a caregiver and and certainly research has shown that yeah, in an incredible adjustment of lifestyle, not only yeah. for that person that is suffering from dementia, but also uh, those that are caring. Well, this subject subjects <laughs> can 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 go on. We greatly appreciate your 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 insights into this, and um, we hope we can reserve the the opportunity to to call on you again for some some other subjects that come up related to this that we think that, geez, you know, Joe would be a good voice for this. So uh, so stay tuned on that. With that, we have great shows coming up in on Health Chatter. Our next show, believe it or not, will be on childhood diabetes. And so that that also will be of, of great interest because we're seeing 
higher incidence of, of diabetes in younger populations. So with that, thank you for being with us. Thank you for all the comments from all of us on, on the show. And to all of you in the listening audience, keep help chatting away. <laughs>